If you have kids or have ever worked with kids, then you know how differently they can make you feel at any moment. For those who say they don't like kids, they only know their experiences when kids get them frustrated, and those are absolutely real. Kids are obstinate at times. They won't eat any of the food you put in front of them. They will fail to do something you ask them to do over and over and over again. They'll manipulate, they'll push, they'll scream, they'll whine, they'll cry, they'll make a mess, they'll invade your personal space. I think you get the idea. Well, for those who say they don't like kids, I'm not sure if they have fully experiences, experienced the times when kids surprise you, the times when they make you smile, the times when they warm your heart, the times when they even teach you. Like each one of us, kids are natural-born rebels. And if you have spent any amount of time with children or were one, you, or were one yourself, you know this. However, there are elements of God's common grace that he bestows on each and every one of us. These are elements like a basic sense of right and wrong and an innocence or an ignorance to what the world is really like. So even though kids are natural-born rebels, they are refreshingly simple. And I mean that in the best way possible. They have yet to learn what it's like to put on masks to hide what they really feel. Sometimes that's frustrating and a little abrasive, but other times it's just the sweetest thing. So at VBS this past week, there were plenty of examples of this sort of wear your heart on your sleeve reality. There were kids who will hold your hand for just no reason at all. There were those who would blurt out a truth from the Bible just because they finally understood it. And there were those who would celebrate a victorious relay race like they just won the World Series. However, the most uplifting and precious and almost convicting moment of this simple wear-your-heart-on-your-sleeve reality was seeing the interaction between kids who look nothing alike. Certainly, kids see differences in skin tone. But they didn't need help to understand that they're all just kids. There were no awkward moments. There was no timidity. It was just, hey, I'm a kid. You're a kid. Let's have fun. These kinds of actions from kids show us how often we act hypocritically. Not doing what we know and proclaim to be right out of fear or out of selfishness. What we find in the portion of Galatians we come to this morning is a prominent leader in the church not operating according to what he believes, according to what he knows is right. The text says he acted hypocritically, namely that his actions masked the gospel he knew to be true. So with that, let's turn to our passage. You'll find it in your bulletin. It's the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Verses 11 to 14. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, 
he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray as we begin. Dear Father, would you open our hearts to receive what you would have for us from your word. May what is expounded here be faithful to what you have provided in your word. May we leave here being more impressed with you rather than ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The main point, what I think God is showing us in this passage, is that we do not merely preserve the gospel, as we've seen in the previous weeks, in things like our doctrinal statements. No, we also preserve the gospel in how we live. The gospel is our authority for living. Our actions either display it or undermine it. So we're going to develop this point a little differently than we usually do. We're first going to review a little bit where we've been in the book of Galatians. Then we're going to notice the situation that this account takes place in because there is a lot of background information that will be helpful for us. And then we're going to look at the two main characters of the text, Peter and Paul, and break down their actions, their motivations, and the outcome of this situation. So we begin with the review. We're still in the opening section of Paul's letter to the churches in southern Galatia. And from the opening of chapter 1, we sense a tension that Paul is addressing. This tension has come from the teaching of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group who taught that to become a follower of Jesus, one had to keep the Old Testament law, which included things like circumcision and dietary restrictions. Why was this a big deal? Because the Judaizers' teaching clashed with Paul's gospel. With Paul's gospel of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone with no works being necessary, including the law, for salvation to become a Christian. But works display and evidence our faith that we have in Christ. So in order to substantiate their teaching, the Judaizers had to undermine Paul. And this is what Paul is addressing. And the Judaizers were beginning to succeed in their efforts to slander Paul. They questioned the legitimacy of his apostleship by saying that he was subordinate to the apostles before him who were in Jerusalem. Not only did they say that Paul was subordinate or a second-class apostle, but also that he was a wayward apostle, that he distorted what the Jerusalem apostles taught. So right from the beginning of the letter, we see Paul's rebuttal to the claims of the Judaizers. He begins in chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, that the only gospel that can save is the gospel of grace. He continues that he received the gospel of grace directly from God by a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the event of the Damascus Road. He stresses that he received this gospel independent of the Jerusalem apostles. Indeed, the first three years after he became a Christian, he was on his own. 
And when he first saw the Jerusalem apostles, he was only there for two weeks, and he only saw two of them. Not enough time to be shaped by their teaching. But at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul has a new emphasis. While he received the gospel of grace that saves and brings life, he received this independent from the Jerusalem apostles. Nonetheless, he received the same gospel as the rest of the apostles received. So after 14 years after his conversion, God sent Paul to Jerusalem to make sure his ministry wasn't in vain, to make sure that the Jerusalem apostles didn't sell out to the Judaizers because it would have undermined and undercut Paul's efforts of ministry in places outside of Israel. But what we see is a good outcome from his visit. Paul's visit to Jerusalem confirmed that he and the Jerusalem apostles were on the same page. First, we saw that in the test case of Titus. We see this at the beginning of chapter 2. A Gentile companion of Paul who was not forced to be circumcised. Second, we saw that in the words of the Jerusalem apostles who affirmed the gospel that Paul set before them and recognized the grace of God in Paul's life and gave him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship as they spread the gospel to the Gentiles. So that's where we've been. As we come this morning, we approach a new scene, which presumably happened after Paul had gone to Jerusalem. Paul had gone to the turf of the Jerusalem apostles, indeed the very city of Jerusalem. But now, Cephas is on Paul's turf in Antioch. We remind ourselves of the uniqueness of the city of Antioch, at the time the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, and a diverse city at that, a melting pot, with a large Jewish population. Indeed, the church at Antioch was too diverse for followers of Jesus just to be regarded as another sect of Judaism. No, it was so diverse that Acts 11 tells us that it was in Antioch that followers of Jesus were first called Christians. So we have multiple cultures mixing with one another, largely for the first time. And when that happens, there's bound to be some adjustment. Perhaps a good modern-day example of this is the desegregation of schools in the latter half of the 20th century. So by 1971, desegregation had been a reality for over 10 years. But if you know your history, it took a while to, t- to take place. Many schools remained imbalanced. And this was the case of public high schools in Alexandria, Virginia. And there were three public high schools, but in 1971, they merged into one, T.C. Williams High School. T.C. Williams High School, this merger was the subject of the film, Remember the Titans. In the film, we see how the mixing of white and black students created tension at the school and on the football team. Much of this tension was a result of misunderstanding of each other's background and culture. There are heavy moments and light moments of this tension. For example, we see moments when white players 
See black players being refused service at a restaurant. You also see light moments, like the differences between taste and music, between white players who like Buck Owens and the Buckaroos and black players who like Marvin Gaye. I'll side with Marvin Gaye. Now, one of the most significant events in any culture, and even the film shows this, is a meal. Around the world, you see different customs of how people sit down for a meal. In the film, it takes a while for white and black players to finally sit with one another. However, this is also an ancient reality, which is the Christians in Antioch especially felt. Jews eating with Gentiles at this time was a big deal because Gentiles ate unclean foods. Many also ate foods sacrificed to idols. And another layer to it, too, was that Greco-Roman culture had tried to stamp out any other kind of culture. So the Jews tried to be as distinctive and hold on to the law as strictly as possible to keep it so that it wouldn't be stamped out. This meant that they wouldn't eat with Gentiles. So you can imagine then how much tension this situation comes with. And I want us to see that there is some baggage underlying this situation here. There is a social pressure that has existed for hundreds of years of remaining pure and separate from Gentile influence. Indeed, this pressure was enforced by Jewish zealot groups who would persecute Jews who didn't strictly follow the law. There's tension here. But there's also the reality, the greater reality, of the blood-bought community of Christ. An entrance to this community is on the basis of faith, not on keeping cultural customs. So with that situation in mind, with that baggage in mind, let's look at Peter, the first main character in these verses, who Paul again refers to as Cephas, his Aramaic name. To break down the character of Peter, we're going to notice his actions, his motives, and then the outcome of his actions. So what did Peter do? We look at the text, friends, in verse 12. Peter came to Antioch, a prominent city in Syria, And verse 12 says he was eating with the Gentiles. And notice the tense of that verb, eating. It doesn't say he ate with the Gentiles. It says he was eating with the Gentiles. It was an ongoing action. He kept on doing it. Now, eating with the Gentiles most likely means that Peter was eating unclean food. He was chowing down on bacon. And this seems to be the case because Paul expands the description in verse 14 to say that Peter was living like a Gentile. So Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was only doing this for a limited time. Verse 12 says that after certain men came from James, what happened? Peter drew back. And separated himself from eating with the Gentiles. So these are the two things that Peter did. He was eating, and something happened, and then he stopped. Why did he do this? How do we explain Peter's actions? Well, Peter's motive for eating with the Gentiles 
and even eating unclean food comes from a teaching from the Lord himself in Acts chapter 10. It was then when Jesus confirmed to Peter that previously unclean foods were now clean because Jesus fulfilled the law. And subsequently, the ceremonial aspects of the law were removed. This not only shows that entrance to the people of God is based on faith in Christ, but also this reality facilitates the fellowship of Jews and Gentiles. Simply put, friends, it allows them to eat the same things and share meals together. And we know how significant that is even for us today, to share a meal with someone. So when Peter first got to Antioch, he was living out this intended reality. And he displayed to the Gentiles that they weren't second-class Christians, but that they were full members and fully stood in the righteousness of Christ, just like a Jew. So we see Peter's motivation for withdrawing. Something, something happens. Something changes. That makes Peter switch. He says he did so, that he withdrew because he feared the circumcision party. So if we connect the dots, then we see men from James saw Peter eating with the Gentiles and most likely told him something about the circumcision party that made him stop eating. And what could they have told him? This is why knowing the historical situation behind the text is important for interpreting any passage of the Bible. If we remember the historical situation, then we find that this group, the circumcision party, is most likely Jewish zealots who persecuted Jews who ate with Gentiles. They applied pressure to Jewish Christians to remain loyal to their Jewish heritage. This was because of how much Jews had been through already. But becoming a Christian for a Jew was, did not mean giving up their ethnicity. No, it meant extending in love to the Gentiles because Christ makes them one. Thus in Peter's mind though, drawing back from the Gentiles was a means of protecting Jewish Christians. It was a means of maintaining their reputation among Jews who didn't believe the gospel. So when we look back and, and we see the motivation, the larger picture of it in Peter's mind, these seem like really legitimate reasons. And then Paul comes and just rebukes him really strongly. But this situation is different from accommodating a weak brother or sister who has a weak conscience. No, Peter knew what was right in this situation because he had done what was right previously. And moreover, the Lord himself told him how to act in these types of situations. So instead of trusting God when the pressure ramped up, Peter bent underneath the pressure. He feared man more than he trusted God, which led him to an action that undermined the gospel. So some situations like this are more difficult than others. Indeed, there are varying amounts of pressure. And we see that Peter was under a significant amount of pressure. But isn't it amazing 
how easily we can bend ourselves. Christian, how many times have you had opportunities to share the gospel and you haven't and you remain silent? How many times have you had opportunities to stand up for what is right and for God's word? Did you remain silent? Man, I, I can think of, I think just this week. It's, it's crushing. That makes me shake in my boots. It makes me think of my inadequacy. In fact, I had one of those moments last Sunday as I was driving back from Kentucky. I stopped to get gas at a station in LaGrange, Kentucky. I went into the convenience store attached to the station so I wanted to get some snacks for the road, uh, including a Slim Jim, which I don't know why I got a Slim Jim. Uh, there may be no more processed food on the planet than a Slim Jim. Um, but as I went to check out, the clerk was probably a guy a little younger than me. Uh, he was a little rough looking, but he was just sincerely interested in having a conversation. Like, some, you, you're asked sort of the standard questions when you check out sometimes, and you could tell when it's just a routine. But this guy, there was something different that just wasn't phony at all. He asked me how my day was going, what I had done, what I was doing for Father's Day, and he even opened up to me how he was going to call his dad when he got off work in a few minutes. And in my mind, I knew that all these questions, like this, this guy is just providing bridges to something deeper, to something more impactful, a bridge to the gospel. He's opening himself up to me. I knew that in that moment. But you know what? I said, in my mind, I was, I want to get on the road. I just want to go home. I knew the right thing to do, and I didn't do it. So the situations when you are tempted to draw back and bend under pressure, it may look different for you. Now my aim is not to tell you that you have to share the gospel with every clerk and with every stranger that you encounter. However, if we are honest with ourselves, we know that we stumble in this area way too often. We fear the opinions of others more than we trust God. The reality is that this fear is, just, is often unfounded. Friend, if, if you are kind and patient with someone, especially when talking about God and sharing the gospel, 99 times out of 100, people will respond the same way if you just remain calm. But not only is this fear often unfounded, beyond that, it's just backwards. For those who are secure in Christ, why do we fear others? It's backwards. So it is humbling that Peter, one of the three guys who was closest to the Lord himself during his earthly ministry, it is humbling that even Peter, who messed up several times before this and learned lessons, it is humbling that even Peter is liable to stumble. It is a reminder, friends, that we must never think 
that we stand on our own, that we must always cast ourselves on God's grace every single day. This also means that when we do stumble, that we go back to him and ask for strength to repent, strength to not do that the next time. When the gospel is our authority for living, we are bold to stand for it when there is pressure to bend. When the gospel is our authority for living, we are bold to stand for it when there is pressure to bend. Unfortunately, our sketch of Peter doesn't end here. This account reminds us that our actions impact others. Indeed, the outcome of Peter's action was that he took others with him. Even Barnabas, Paul says. Barnabas, Paul's wingman, as a missionary to who? To Gentiles. Even Barnabas was led away into hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. As many of you know, this is an acting term. It literally means putting on a mask and playing a part. The dictionary definition of the word used here in this text is a public impression that is at odds with one's real purposes or motivations, led into hypocrisy. This outcome should show us that there is no such thing as a private sin with no consequences. There is no such thing as a private sin with no consequences. Your actions influence others. Sometimes this is because of a known position of leadership, like being a boss or a parent or a leader in the church. However, even if you don't have this kind of position, don't think that your actions do not have influence. We've experienced this ourselves. We see this in emotions or moods. If you're with a person who's angry or depressed or complains, do you know what it's like? That just spreads like a virus to people. Actions influence others, but it works the other way, doesn't it, too? We know people whose joy is just infectious, whose smile lights up a room. Paul experienced this himself later when he was imprisoned in Rome. So the system of his imprisonment was set up that he was chained to a guard. And it wasn't the same guard all the time. It was a rotation of guards. And so for Paul, this was a redeemable moment. This was a perfect situation. He literally had a captive audience to share the gospel to. And so that's what he did, each and every one. And many of them became Christians. And many of them were influenced by Paul's boldness. He says in Philippians 1.14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That is the power of our actions around others. If you want sharing the gospel to be easier, start talking about it to one another. And see how much encouragement helps you. Do not underestimate your influence. 
In fact, ask yourself, how are you influencing others? Where do the general patterns of your life lead others to? Do they lead others to glorify Christ? Or do they lead others to question how consistent you can live when you are a Christian and do not live like you are? How are you influencing others for the good of the gospel? If we ended here, we'd have an incomplete picture of the story. In fact, if we left it at Peter, the outcome would be a little bit bleak. So now we're going to break down Paul in the same way. First his actions, then his motives, and then the outcome of his actions. Paul opens in verse 11 and gives a general overview of what he did to Peter. He says that he opposed Peter what? He opposed Peter to his face. To his face. You can go ahead and write that down. He handled the conflict in a direct manner. Certainly that's a principle for us. Jumping down to verse 14, another one of Paul's actions. He says that he saw what was happening. He saw what was happening. He confronted Peter after receiving credible information and a credible witness of what was happening. He saw what Peter did. In the same verse, Paul gives more details of his opposition to Peter. He says that he spoke to Peter in front of everyone. In front of everyone. We just stop here for a moment and Think of the gravity of this situation. Two of the most influential people in Christian history, Peter and Paul. Paul confronting Peter in a room full of people. I don't know if you've ever been in a room where there's a fight between people you know. It was just the room gets sucked dry. It's, it's silent. And all eyes are focused. I couldn't imagine what it was like in this situation. He confronted Peter in front of everyone. Was this necessary? Doesn't this seem a little harsh? This is so, this is so fundamentalist of Paul. Public confrontation was necessary because Peter's sin was public. It affected other people. Indeed, too many people saw it and too many other people were led by it for his rebuke to be kept in private. So this is the difference between here and Jesus' instructions of church discipline in Matthew 18. There, Jesus deals with a situation when one person sins against another person in private. And the goal of this process is to keep the situation private, is to resolve it that way. And if necessary, if it continues, to make it public. But here, the situation with Peter jumps to the last one. It has to be dealt with in public. So what did Paul say? The content of what he says is in verse 14. He says Peter was already living like the Gentiles. Peter was already living like the Gentiles. But now he wants to tell the Gentiles that they can't do what he has already done, what he himself has done. That's hypocritical. That's inconsistent. So why did Paul do what he did? We see the boldness of Paul to confront someone like Peter. 
Like I said, one of the three men closest to Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. The boldness it took of Paul. Why did Paul do this? It was because Peter stood condemned. These are strong words. Paul's action shows that he lives out his theology. If you look back to chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says that God shows no partiality. While Paul respects the influence Peter has, it doesn't mean that Peter can do whatever he wants. Peter is still subject to the gospel. And Paul shows how important the gospel is by confronting Peter, a man of his stature. Because even a man of Peter's stature must be rebuked if they distort the message of how God saves sinners in Christ. In fact, this is exactly what Paul is getting at in verse 14. The conduct of Peter and those who stopped eating with the Gentiles was out of step with the truth of the gospel. And this is the heart of the passage right here. How exactly was it out of step? Well, by not eating with the Gentiles, they were communicating something different than what the gospel actually is. They were communicating that the Gentiles must do something more than believe in Jesus in order to be Christians, in order to be fully a part of the people of God. They were communicating that the Gentiles must keep Jewish dietary restrictions in order to have a full righteous standing before God. That's not the gospel. The only requirement is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is faith that unites us to Jesus' merits. It is faith that unites us to Jesus' substitutionary death on our behalf. It is faith that unites us to Jesus' victorious resurrection. This is what gives us a righteous standing before God, not our own actions. This is why Paul rebuked Peter. He saw that the truth of the gospel was at stake. And one has to wonder also if Paul's heart broke in this moment. He broke for the Gentiles who were probably made to feel like second-class people. You think of churches in the old American South where white members would force black members to wait to take the Lord's Supper until all the white members had gone. That is not the gospel. It compromises the gospel. This potential compromise of the gospel would not only dishonor God, but also affect real people. Thus, Paul acted according to the reality that the gospel of Jesus stands above any man, including one like Peter. So when living a life where the gospel is the authority, confrontation is necessary. Do you cherish the gospel so much that you are bold enough to take a stand for it when you know confrontation is necessary? In this passage, we see that Peter avoided confrontation, but Paul didn't. When we avoid confrontation, we may mistake what we think is politeness or peacemaking 
we may mistake those things with selfishness and not wanting to deal with what we know is wrong. In moments when confrontation is necessary, are we doing it honestly? Having received credible information like Paul, are we doing it honestly by speaking directly to the person or persons? Also, are we doing it on the right basis? This means we are confronting to protect or advance the gospel. And we are confronting out of love for the other person rather than confronting to show how great we are or to be vindictive. These criteria also extend to giving criticism. Indeed, there is such a thing as giving godly criticism. Godly criticism is motivated by the desire to protect or better communicate the gospel and it aims to love the person. It aims to love the person by building them up, sometimes more sternly than others. But it aims to build the other person up, not puffing ourselves up and tearing that person down. Godly confrontation to protect the gospel. So what happened here? Paul kind of cuts us off. How was this res- uh, resolved? Paul doesn't write of the specific outcome. But interestingly enough, his label of Peter and the others as hypocrites is telling. Indeed, Peter and the others were labeled as hypocrites because they were not acting according to what they believed. So what does this mean? This means if Peter had persisted in his actions, then he would have been just like a Judaizer. However, Paul does not call Peter a false brother like he did the Judaizers in chapter 2, verse 4. And later writings of Paul further indicate that he knew Peter was a genuine Christian. So what conclusion can we make here? Is that Peter repented after Paul confronted him. So lest we leave Peter just being bashed up, we must commend him for how he received rebuke. For the amount of boldness it took for Paul to rebuke a man of Peter's stature, it took the same amount of humility for a man of Peter's stature not to respond in ego, in pride, in anger, and dismissal. That's just as amazing. So be warned, friends, if you always dish out criticism but never take any yourself. As there is a godly way to give criticism, there is also a godly way to receive criticism. The one who lives with the authority of the gospel is one who realizes that he or she has not yet arrived. That he or she still needs grace and is still often wrong and is open to receive correction. So as we conclude this morning, Let's talk about hypocrisy. Perhaps you're here, and one of the things from keeping you to become a Christian is because the church is full of hypocrites. I would agree with you. But know that walking through the church doors does not make you a Christian. Moreover, I would ask you, if all of your thoughts and words were recorded, would that message prove 
that you perfectly followed your own moral standards. Everybody's a hypocrite. You know why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only one who ever walked the earth who is not a hypocrite is Jesus. And he will judge you on the last day. Tell me, do you think appealing to the sins of others to justify your own sins will be a good enough excuse for the Lord? Nope. So take the hand in faith. Take the hand extended in mercy. The hand of the one who is sinless but died for sin. Take that hand in faith now. Friends, a life lived on the authority of gospel, of the gospel, realizes that we are liable to hypocrisy. However, we cannot stay there. At times, we are called to protect the message of how God saves sinners by boldly, honestly, and lovingly confronting those in error or sin. At other times, we are called to do this by humbly receiving criticism ourselves. Either way, we are prizing what God has done for us in Christ over our own reputation, over our own comfort, and over our pride. Let's pray. Dear God, this message strikes us. This passage strikes us to the core. Let us not leave here with a puffed up vision of ourselves, knowing that we are liable to the same mistake that Peter made. But you have called us to be bold and to be humble at the same time. Why? to protect that precious message, to send forth that precious message that though man is sinful, that you displayed your love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So let us cherish that. Put that above ourselves. Make that our authority. And through that, glorify yourself. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Closing hymn is number 576, Give Thanks.